Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. Um, on this episode, I'm talking to Charles Umney, who's an associate professor at the University of Leeds, about his new book, which is called Class Matters, Inequality and Exploitation in 21st Century Britain. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, this is an incredibly kind of well-timed and important book, I think, actually, given the social and, uh, and economic crisis that we've got going on in the UK. But it's also a book, I think, that speaks... Um, right across Western Europe, America, or Australia as, as well, in its attempt to kind of like reintroduce uh, class. And I guess the place to start is is why are you interested in in, in class? What well, what's been your sort of I guess kind of motivation in, in thinking we need we need a book about class? Well, I suppose that is perhaps a confluence of different motivations. But let's say the the first real motivation was almost the kind of political context. So um, particularly over the last decade, and I'd say even more so since, you know, the kind of Brexit referendum and what's been happening since then, um, the topic of class as like a political talking point has seemingly kind of had a bit of a resurgence. You know, you'll recall kind of Theresa May um, giving her kind of big speech on becoming leader of the Conservative Party about wanting to speak up for the working class. We've had Jeremy Corbyn saying very similar things recently. And of course, the whole debate around Brexit has been very much filtered through this kind of language of class and sort of using those ideas. However, um, the sort of starting point of the book is the the argument that these ideas, why they've been having a resurgence, have done so in a kind of very sort of mutilated and self-serving and sometimes quite absurd way. You know, so the initial stages of the book are kind of really critiquing the way in which in much of sort of political discussion in much of the media, the idea of class, you know, the idea of sort of whatever, being working class or being part of the kind of quote-unquote middle class or elites or whatever is set up in in quite a let's say problematic way you know so a number of people have noticed the conflation between things like phrases like the traditional working class quote-unquote which is something people like Theresa May and and sort of kind of particularly sort of more conservative media has used a lot um, often in a kind of euphemistic way meaning, you know, implying the kind of exclusion of ethnic minorities, immigrants, and so on. So, yeah, actually, the, the, the kind of proximate motivation was um, a desire to sort of offer a corrective to what I saw as the sort of, yeah, the, the kind of increasingly absurd and sort of self-serving politicised use of the term that, that kind of seems to prevail currently. Um, beyond that, of course, there's there's my own sort of academic background, which has increasingly over the sort of the course of various different sort of previous research projects, become more interested in kind of renovating and revitalizing 
Marxist ideas of class. So I guess the book is kind of the confluence of partly that motivation to address current political problems and partly to sort of bring out a lot of the sort of academic thinking I've been doing over recent years as well. It's interesting you mentioned the kind of academic thinking because I guess the book is sort of, um, I wouldn't go as far as in opposition to, but it's certainly in dialogue Mm. with how uh, new academic understandings of class have emerged in some ways kind of actually alongside um, these political abuses of the term. And and I guess it'd be interesting to know um, the sort of contours of of the academic debates that you're you're interested in intervening in particular. Um, you know, the kind of like the emergence of Bourdieu as, a, as an important influence and, you know, the kind of, um, I suppose, a, a more sort of cultural-led form of, of yeah. class. So, yeah, you're right. It's I think I have a, a, a funny relationship with that kind of Bourdieu-influence sociology um, because I, I don't really see this book as arguing in opposition to that necessarily, but more kind of departing from it and going in a very different direction which is not sort of directly contrary but which just develops a very different language and a different set of context uh, concepts and a different um different kind of set of expectations and a different set of things which it thinks is important perhaps so there's a couple of things which really should be mentioned so a lot of it yes is a response to the kind of very strong influence of obviously Bourdieu and, and people kind of writing in this country who I think follow quite closely in his subject, in his footsteps. So, for instance, people like um, Mike Savage and the Great British Class Survey, which is, you know, one of the most sort of visible, high-profile um, discussions of class in this country over the last few years. Um, also, of course, within that, we should also mention people like uh, Guy Standing, um, you know, the concept of the precariat which has become extremely uh, influential. And perhaps that's something which has attracted more kind of direct critique, which, you know, which, which sort of features in the book. Um, so the reason, okay, the way I've sort of understood that sociological literature is as a very kind of, um, you know, compelling, rich, descriptive effort to, to understand classification you know in other words to sort of present class as a means of categorizing people's experiences um often using um you know ideas like capitals you know so not necessarily capital in the marxian sense but in the terms of you know symbolic cultural capital people's social networks their reference points their kind of understanding of cultural processes you know using these phenomena to develop um kind of very fine-grained and quite rich classifications into which people can effectively be sorted. Um, That seems to me to be kind of uh, Savage's agenda following Bourdieu. And to some extent, it's also like Guy Standing's agenda. Um, Although, you know, the the sort of way he categorises the precariat is, is perhaps a bit controversial and you can take issue with it in some respects. So, yeah, the... Perhaps the academic point of departure is wanting to move away from this idea of class as a means of classification, first and foremost, and instead take, let's say, a slightly more orthodox Marxist view, 
of class as something which gets at a relationship, you know, and a process rather than um, rather than a sort of system of sorting people. Um, so I can go on there if you like. <laughs> sort of why? Well, well, this is the thing. Like, obviously, the book is you know really kind of heavily influenced by by Marx's idea of class, and and as will you know kind of unpack over the rest of the conversation ideas about you know um, alienation workers control the role of the state you know all of these kind of things are obviously very um, heavily influenced by by Marx's idea of, of class which obviously begs the question of what what is Marx's idea of class okay yeah so so um as I present it here I'm always conscious that Marx is often interpreted in different ways but sort of as i've tried to render it here um via marx i present class as fundamentally being about the the role the relationships the kind of imperatives that are imposed on people as a result of their position in the kind of economic structure of society um so for instance you know under capitalist societies we find that there are a number of people who, in order to kind of continue existing, they depend on being able to sell their labour power. On the other hand, there are other groups of people who, um, in order, again, to continue existing, sort of depend on being able to invest and purchase that labour power as part of a for-profit investment where they then extract uh, profit from that investment, which is then reinvested. And, you know, there are a whole range of other functions which kind of sit in relation to, to these positions. You know, it might be that someone's, someone's kind of role is to, to manage these processes on behalf of uh, an investor. It might be that someone's role is kind of uh, within a kind of public function which oversees the regulation of this process overall. So I start by sort of trying to identify the different roles, functions people have within a kind of economic structure of society. And then we sort of argue that these things matter. You know, they, they, they perhaps transcend, they, they imply problems, imperative pressures, which transcend a lot of the other distinctions, a lot of the other uh, sort of differences which we, we might observe. So, for instance... You know, while we could, you know, we might sort of take someone who perhaps in many respects, you know, in a kind of more Borgesian sense signifies part of a kind of relatively elite group, let's say, in terms of cultural reference points, social networks. Um, But from my perspective, if circumstances dictate that this person then is sort of becomes dependent on selling their own um, labor power, uh, to someone else in order to furnish profit for them, then we start to see sort of particular processes, particular imperatives and relationships which are, are broadly comparable to people in the same kind of situation, albeit in very, very different kind of uh, class categorizations in the Borgesian sense. Um, so, for instance, in, in the second chapter here, which is kind of the sort of longest chapter really where I try and go through the different elements of a Marxist theory of class, I start to point to things like the imperative for control over someone's actions in the workplace. 
I talk about things like um, what's called, you know, the sort of disciplinary effect of the reserve army. In other words, the fact that people with sort of prospects, their negotiating power in relation to their employer is conditioned by um, the existence of sort of people out of work and this sort of ability of capital to to tap into competing labour forces. I talk about the need for capital to to exercise control over knowledge and kind of find ways of quantifying, metricizing, controlling the sort of otherwise tacit knowledge and skills of the worker. These kinds of things, these kinds of processes are phenomena which you can find um, really across the social spectrum and which apply I sort of argue essentially wherever people depend on being depend on selling their labor power in exchange for a wage or some other form of remuneration. And on the other hand, um, those people, you know, we might call capital, whose sort of role or who, who whose function is to um, kind of purchase this labor power as part of a for-profit investment, they also have a kind of set of imperatives which acts on them, you know, the need to extract more, the need to reinvest quickly and, and kind of expand. So essentially, yeah, this is perhaps a kind of long roundabout way of saying that I want to focus on the relationships and imperatives that um, sort of define the way in which people interact with each other in in the kind of within the economic structure of society. And I argue that these things imply change pressures they imply sort of processes relationships which can't be adequately accounted for and understood if we see class primarily as a means of categorizing different experiences the the, the one thing the book does um i guess after it lays out that uh, theoretical perspective is to really um make this concrete by offering a, a sort of quite short history of, of how inequality, exploitation and class relations have in some ways changed, but in, in other ways have kind of um, had continuity over the last sort of century ago. Um, and particularly, you know, in, in the last 10 years with the financial crisis. So I wonder if you could, um, you know, maybe sort of illustrate that relational um, economic um, position view of, of class um, by talking me through a little bit of the sort of, um, the history of of Britain through this lens. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, I think for for anyone writing about sort of social, economic, political issues, um, sort of at our current point in time, a, a lot of the discussion here goes through, I suppose, what what is often called like neoliberalism. Let's say, um, but sort of starts from the basic premise that. You know, we had this historically relatively unique periods after the Second World War, where due to a sort of complex of different circumstances, we could say that labor, i.e. Um, those people dependent on selling their labor power in order to reproduce themselves, um, had relatively sort of high levels of power in relation to capital. So... Uh, you know, comparatively strong trade unions, a government which was, again, comparatively committed to um, the creation and extension of welfare states, um, comparatively sort of high levels of 
kind of coordination and and sort of planning um, within uh, within the kind of governance of the economy. Now, it's not sort of news that since I guess the kind of late seventies, we've seen a lot of those processes go into reverse effectively, and we've seen the kind of decrease of the relative power of labor in relation to capital um but we've seen the kind of shifting of kind of macroeconomic governments towards the market and so on now in the kind of marxist terms that i try and outline here essentially that has to be understood as a kind of shift in the balance of class forces you know so we can we can see sort of the last four decades have been a period where for a whole range of reasons um, the power of capital has been in the ascendance over over the power of labor, you know, and this is evident in sort of data around things like the labor share, where the kind of, sort of percentage of national wealth going to going in the form of wages relative to sort of that going back to as returns to capital has significantly decreased. And this is clearly not just a kind of UK phenomena. If anything, I think this is even more obvious in, in other places. So... Yeah, the the kind of big macro level context is this sort of long running reversal of um, the kind of gains made by labour relative to capital in the post war years, um, and I do I try and I guess go into a bit more depth here. So I, I try and look at things like um, you know ideas around financialization, where we can start to see changes in the way in which um, the sort of behaviour and characteristics of British capital, you know. So how is um, how is the sort of yeah the behaviour, the actions, the priorities of 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 capitalists of capital um, in this country changing? Um, and then, of course, this in turn brings us on to issues like uh, precarious work um, and the kind of kind of increasing weakness of of labor at this point in time so yeah there is I'm not sure if this quite answers <laughs> the sort of question you're asking but yeah the, the 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 macro level context is this sort of process of um uh relative decline in in the the sort of power of labor to get gains from capital and but this is manifested in really quite a long list of different ways which i suppose are sort of explored in varying forms throughout the book yeah i mean exactly that there, there tends to be that moment in i guess the kind of marxist political economy that will sketch out um say you know the kind of as you've said changes in the balance between labor and capital in in who gains you know who kind of um, is getting the, the spoils of, of economic activity and then in some ways there might be that moment of you know that analysis on a structural level being enough but obviously the thing you do in the rest of the book is is you almost go you know kind of micro on the level of what goes on in the warehouse the call center you know in in, in the workplace um and a perfect example of that is how control functions um you know maybe with actually the example of, of precisely that warehouses or or call centers yeah so my, i mean my background's as an academic is on sort of um, micro level, 
qualitative sociology looking at um, the workplace, you know, so looking at people's experience of kind of control, discipline, resistance within workplaces. And so, yeah, for that reason, within the kind of macro level context I was talking about previously, which I think is fairly well rehearsed, um, yeah, I really wanted to sort of give like as rich as possible a kind of depiction of what this actually means for people working, what this actually means to, to sort of act as labor in, um, in, you know, 21st century Britain. So, yeah, you mentioned kind of warehousing work. I think, I mean, th- this has been the subject of a number of kind of, I guess, sort of press exposés. This is something which is becoming increasingly sort of unavoidable, you know, when we're talking about kind of, um, you know, major firms like Amazon and so on. Uh, I talk about sort of experiences from things like the kind of Amazon warehouse, warehouse where, um, you know, uh, we find things like, okay, for example, kind of little electronic sort of devices that people sort of carry around, which monitor people's uh, speed of work, which kind of bleep aggressively at people if they... Um, you know, if they, they're perceived to be dropping below a certain pace, which essentially give, you know, which, which kind of monitor when people are going to the toilet, which monitor when they sort of stop to talk to someone, which essentially kind of is, you know, gives us like a, a real dystopian, quite kind of nightmarish level of control um, over, you know, the individual doing that work. Um, you know, we could also, you know, I've worked in call centers previously. That's another perhaps sort of somewhat more distant underlying motivation for this book is kind of that, those experiences. Um, you know, anyone who's sort of done call center work will, will be familiar with this idea of, um, you know, kind of near total control and kind of surveillance over what you're doing. So, Certainly, yeah, there are a number of jobs where we can kind of present this almost, like I say, almost quite dystopian picture of control over the worker. But what I wanted to sort of get away from was the idea that this is just like, you know, a a kind of awful problem of um, particular kinds of sort of lower wage, lower productivity service work. Um, What I wanted to argue was that actually this kind of imperative, you know, the sort of existential need for capital to exercise control over labor is something which, you know, is not just confined, confined to these areas, you know, um, in sort of uh, forms of professional work, for instance, which sort of on a superficial level might be associated with relatively high levels of kind of professional discretion, um, autonomy, you know, there's a lot of evidence to say that, you know, work, for example, in education, dare I say even higher education, which probably we won't, shouldn't really get into. But, you know, things like um, metricization, increasing kind of qualification, quantification of, um, of people's work, um, increasing threats to exercise more control over people's time, you know, through sort of uh, kind of 24-7 connectivity to the workplace, um, sort of forms of kind of 360-degree evaluation. You know, the, the control imperative is by no means limited to, um, 
to, to particular kind of things at the sort of quote unquote bottom end of the labor market. And uh, yeah, this, this again, I, I suppose this is something that perhaps you don't pick up if you have a focus on class as a means of classification, you know, you don't, you don't sort of tend to, to note these sort of cross cutting imperatives, which shape people's relationships in a whole range of different contexts. I mean, later on in the book, actually, you, you, you kind of come back to that question of um, control through things like metrics and, you know, new forms of surveillance through this um, impact of technology. And, and I wonder, is that, you know, kind of accelerating these processes or or is it, you know, in some ways kind of ameliorating? I think, I mean, so so technology is, is obviously such a big topic that, um, you know, you, you couldn't really say that technology is sort of, um, exacerbating or ameliorating anything sort of in, in that kind of sort of straight out sense. I think the important thing, so so maybe the kind of key point of the book when it's talking about things like technology is that we have to understand that technological process, progress, sorry, or technological change um, is not... Uh, something which kind of goes along neutrally and which then has knock-on effects on labour capital relationships. It is something which is totally dictated by labour capital relationships. You know, so technology is developed and implemented and distributed um, in order to, uh, well, by capital and oftentimes in order to make, you know, sort of to improve the functioning of capitalist processes which could be through things like greater um, productivity at work, greater forms of control at work, um, greater forms of connectivity between different workplaces. So the, the point is, I think that technology tends to evolve and tends to develop in ways which are amenable um, to capital. And those forms which are not um, tend to, well, may continue to exist, but tend to sort of, uh, capital might react against them, let's say. So if we take the workplace, um, let's say, take the example of kind of labour-saving technology. So, um, in the very abstract sense, take the example of some form of technology which um, can greatly decrease the amount of time it takes uh, to to execute a particular task. Now, um, I think from a sort of macro, you know, wider human perspective, this is quite unambiguously a good thing. You know, the the ability to sort of economize, save on kind of whatever backbreaking or tedious work um, from a human perspective is a good thing. The fact that in our societies, this then becomes a danger, a problem, you know, because it, it becomes a means of uh, ejecting someone from work you know it means it becomes a means of making them less secure it becomes a means of exercising further control over them uh, the fact that this is a case is not like a problem of technology per se but um is a problem of the fact that technological change is essentially um under the control of capital you know so the um the way in which technological change plays out, its consequences, its effects um, are fundamentally shaped and warped by the, the sort of social structures we live in. So 
things which could be a very sort of great benefit to humanity, labor-saving technology and so on, uh, new communications technology, become sort of twisted into into something which makes people more insecure or which makes people subject to greater control because of the kind of wider structure of the economy. I mean, there's... Yeah, no, no, it doesn't. That structure of the economy question, uh, I, I suppose, brings us back um, to, I suppose, the bits um, that are you know missing from just you know capital and and worker, and this would be something like unions um, and you know the kind of role of I guess sort of resistance in how that economy is structured. Um, and I, I mean, I might be wrong here, but I detected. You know, on the one hand, a kind of a great hopefulness for the role of unions, and particularly the role of strikes um, in the in the book, but also you know a little ambivalence, a bit actually in terms of of the same way you talk about technology, about you know technology is is dependent on the class relations we have for its impact. Well, I mean, there's there's kind of there's quite an easy narrative that you know again we talked about the sort of macro level context however you want to describe it there's kind of quite an easy narrative which is that okay under conditions of you know neoliberalism and so on globalization uh it's basically union power has been broken uh, you know strikes are at kind of historic lows union union density is declining um until relatively recently and maybe still unions were quite firmly shut out from political power so there's kind of maybe a slightly easy narrative of union decline and and failure over the last sort of few decades now um i don't want to you know sort of go from being a doom monger into a kind of naive optimism monger you know there there is a lot of truth in that however you know i think it's it's a real problem to kind of underestimate what still can be achieved by those through those channels i think often the real problems facing unions is perhaps not that you know it's it's not that we've sort of moved into this new world where they're they're not ever going to be able to cope or the sort of fundamental model of trade unionism is is broken or, or needs changing but i think the issue is that there are a lot of sort of strategic changes improvements that need to be implemented um, that can make a difference. So, you know, new areas that can and should be organised, but which to date haven't been haven't been so effectively. So I think, you know, unions should be thinking about, I mean, to some extent they are, but they need to make a lot more progress in terms of, you know, organising sectors of the economy uh, dominated by hitherto very low rates of unionism, often in kind of um, sort of service industries where there's a high level of kind of migrant labour. You know, they they actually need to be much more actively um, and forcefully trying to organise, trying to build strength in these areas. Um, They need to be thinking about what are the kind of strategic choke points that enable us to, like, have real leverage against, um, against capital, you know, sort of thinking about um, not, you know, if we look at what's happened in the public sector over recent years and in universities, we've seen a series of kind of one day, two day sort of symbolic strikes, which I guess in many cases kind of depressing for everyone involved. 
Um, but actually thinking, where does it really hurt people? How can we build strength where that really hurts? Um, so, yeah, I think actually there can be a really bright future for sort of trade unionism and the, the weapons like strikes, weapons like strikes. But it just requires making advances in new areas. You know, um, it requires organizing uh, service workers, you know, and particularly kind of migrant service workers, because these people really do have power. You know, the, people really do depend on people in kind of logistics or, uh, you know, sort of food packaging, these kinds of things. Uh, people really do depend on these workers. Um, and often the reason that they're not organized is because, is not because, you know, they're in this sort of hopeless environment that can't be um, that can't be organised, but just that, that there's not been sort of sufficient will and effort to do it yet. So yeah, I think um, I, I'm. I, I think I'm, I, I try to recognise how bleak the situation sort of objectively is for labour in many ways, while at the same time trying to sort of avoid defeatism, you know, and trying to sort of recognise that actually, um, as labour under capitalism. Uh, power does reside with you you know um, there can be no capital and no capitalism without um, you know a disciplined labor force and that that very fact sort of means that you always have strength you just need to find out how to exercise it i suppose the other reason for your um, <laughs> lack of over optimism is the role of things like the media um, and you know this kind of broader marxist conception of of ideology as, as well and that i think might be a, a nice nice place to kind of come to the book's conclusion really because you know although the book has you know it's got a long discussion of, of theories of the state there's a lot of stuff about you know health education um various discussions of um you know kind of conceptions of equality um but it's interesting that you chose to kind of end the book i suppose with this with this discussion of uh, of media yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I think in some respects that that almost sort of brings the book full circle a little bit because it kind of the book sort of opens with a discussion of media as well, I guess, because you know the the opening chapter which we discussed before is is about the way in which um, class has been constructed and the kind of very sort of exclusionary, um, often let's say racist way in which um, you know the idea of sort of the traditional working class takes shape. And I think that's totally unavoidable if you look at um, if you look at sort of the media landscape today. You know, the number of times you'll read a newspaper um, referring to, let's say, um, you'll read like a sort of barnstorming editorial talking about um, the working class. You know, standing up for the working class, and you read it, and what is it actually talking about? Well, it's talking about immigration. You know, it's 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 arguing that. Okay, um, you know, uh, it's all these kind of liberal middle class elites who are sort of using immigration as a means of sort of undermining working conditions and so on, which actually, I mean, empirically is a totally flawed argument and sort of politically has done a lot of the legwork in setting up this idea of, um, you know, the working class as we understand it today in the kind of Theresa May sense, you know, sort of... um, basically working class set up to mean the opposite of um cosmopolitan you know so yes the media is is has kind of been up to its neck in in that sort of 
language, that sort of discussion. Um, I think so, so that that's why it's such an important part of the book, you know, and it kind of brings it around sort of full circle at, at, at the end. Um, there's there's a discussion. One thing I tried to do in that discussion of the media was firstly try and perhaps be a bit more pinpointed and detailed in, in criticism of um, the sort of media's role in class relationships. You know, I think it's quite easy to have a sort of relatively simplistic um, blunt Marxist argument where you say, oh yeah, media is owned by capitalists, therefore it's inevitably going to sort of um, distort every picture, every which way it can in order to sort of ill-serve the cause of labour. You know, this is kind of a sort of fairly blunt argument which doesn't recognise the more sort of subtle ways in which ideology works in the media. I mean, one one example I give is with things like reporting on strikes. You know, um, it's very unusual. I mean, anyone who's sort of studied strikes, been involved in strikes, will know that it's very, very difficult to get sort of the striker's perspective heard in the media. You know, it's, it's I think anyone sort of, uh, like pretty much any strike which kind of gets attention from the media will, will be reported in ways which probably are more satisfactory to to employers than than workers a lot of the time now that is not simply because well i mean often it might be because of this but it's not always because of you know because whoever sort of broadcasters newspaper owners are are simply biased and hate trade unions you know that is the case in some some occasions but but obviously not all the time often it's simply that you know people don't necessarily have the wherewithal to really dig deeper into these kinds of issues you know with something like a strike um i think to to un- to come out having a more sort of sympathetic understanding of where labor is coming from in those cases where workers are coming from you actually have to understand the context a lot more you know because it's quite easy to sort of just when you look at these things on the surface to say okay well what a pain how annoying they should go back to work i i think media is often kind of quite just sort of neglectful in the sense that it doesn't really devote much understanding and time to to understanding yeah to, to, to sort of actually developing empathy for the kinds of people it's supposed to be reporting on um it doesn't you know and it needs that empathy in order to kind of get away from sort of the common sense of you know what's good for capital is good for the country so i think i mean there's been some really good works in this like if you look at sort of tom mills's book on the bbc I think um, he talks about things like the sort of stripping away of labor correspondence, industrial correspondence, which has these kinds of uh, sort of quasi unintended consequences for the way in which people understand labor capital issues through the media. Um, Yeah, so I I tried to give a sort of more nuanced Marxist line on on media than 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 sometimes you get. I mean, the the book has sort of generated a, a lot of interest already you know there's been a an extract um published on um quite a popular sort of uh, socialist blog site socialist kind of uh, news site um do you think you've sort of like settled your accounts with class for the moment um or are you going to be kind of you know coming back to this or have you got a sort of you know kind of totally unrelated project plan for your uh, your next set of work I think like, so this book is, is kind of, 
as you mentioned earlier, it's, it's in some ways it's kind of a crossover book, which um, is talking about academic concepts, but it's written in a way which is intended to be read by, by anyone. That kind of writing is, is something which I really wanted to do and which really I was really motivated by, um, and which I hope shows in the book, and which I think may be part of the reason why people are taking an interest in it. You know, the sort of, it's written in a very kind of engaging, accessible way. Um, the, the stuff that I'm working on personally, I feel like at the moment, um, I am perhaps, I have a few more sort of, let's say kind of straighter academic projects that I'm, that I'm working on at the moment. So for instance, which do touch on class. So I'm working on a a project at the minute, which is looking at work in the creative and cultural industries, which obviously would be very familiar to, to you, um, and trying to kind of look at how class relationships in the way I've defined them here might be applied there. Um, that will be sort of, let's say, it'd be a kind of journal paper, so it'll be more sort of academic in tone. But it's talk, talking about similar things. I think um, the just the tone of the book and the sort of kind of quote-unquote crossover elements to it has been quite, that's something which has taken me out of my comfort zone, um, which has been great in many ways. Um, and then at the same time, I think it's probably the, the stuff I'm going to be working on for the next year or so will be, yeah, a, a more kind of what <laughs> kind of more sort of straight down the line, kind of academic attempt to, to sort of develop these ideas further. Then maybe in a few years, you know, some, something similar might come up, like a, sort of try and reach out beyond that a bit more, but we'll see.